this book, I think, does a very good job of, if you're in the industry, you can relate to everything that's being talked about. It's all stuff that we've dealt with or know people that dealt with or whatever. I think it's very good, but it also... I grew up and most of my friends and family were not in restaurants in any way. And I think it also gives them very good insight of stuff that restaurant people deal with, chefs deal with, servers, bartenders, whatever. And I think it does a very good job of, of showing that from both sides. There's a lot of books you read and it, it like kind of sugarcoats stuff and makes it sound like a dream job and the best case scenario all the time. And that's not necessarily what it is. flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome, dear listeners, to another flavorful episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. Today's episode is a special treat. It was recorded live several months back from Bold Fork Books in the heart of Washington, D.C. A massive thank you to Clementine Thomas who is the co-owner of the bookstore Bold Fork Books, for hosting a panel discussion and book signing. Our guest panelists were Chef Matt Conroy from the restaurant Lutece and Chef Opie Crooks. is a culinary director at Farm Hospitality Group in Savannah, Georgia. We dive deep into my book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, which since the recording of this panel discussion has been graced with six awards including the silver winner of the 2023 Nonfiction Book Awards and a bronze medal from the Global Book Awards. Our conversation kicks off with Chef Matt Conroy sharing his impressions of the book, followed by insights on how it resonates with our chef's own experiences and its uniqueness in the culinary literature space. For me, the big thing I got is it wasn't just a, a foodie writing about his passion for food. I, th I think it, it it puts a really good insight of to like, I didn't grow up in a food family in any way. My mom is not a good cook, but I feel like this is a book that if she read, it would give her a very good insight, but it's not necessarily just like, sometimes foodie books are like, they almost write like they want to be a chef. I think Emmanuel takes a very good approach of like just appreciating what chefs do. And I thought that was something that I, I kind of took away from it. It was like uh, his point of view in the book. I really, really liked a lot. Thank you. Yes, and I do not want to be a chef, no, for sure. I had an uncle. I, no, I have, <laughs> no, because I don't think I have, you know, I have the passion for it, but that's it. I don't have the skill set. And I don't think that I would be good enough like to, to have like the stamina to stay, you know, like the whole day and prepping and and as well, getting, you know, feedback from cons customers that sometimes are positive. But so a lot of people don't, don't know. They think it's just, oh, I throw a dinner party and that's, that's it. So No, yeah. In fact, there's, a, sorry to interrupt, but there's, there's something very interesting in the book. And it's mentioned by Chef Yori Tedesco from, from Locadoro in Austin that says, you know, it, if you have a passion for food, it's not enough to open a restaurant. You know, have dinner parties, you know, do good food for your friend. 
But to get a restaurant, you need much more than this. Even beyond the skill sets, you know, you need to have that passion. But the idea as well that you need to be business savvy, you know, especially if you want to be a chef at a restaurant. And you almost need to have a little bit of knowledge of that real estate, you know, as, as well before you invest. So think about it twice before, you know, you jump because after it's too late. <laughs> there's no going back. Once no, you sign your no name on the back. dotted line, there's, there's no, no going, going back. back. Yes, absolutely. I thought the book did a really, really great job of kind of riding the line between like making it sound romantic and also like making it sound very real. And like it made it sound as if, you know, you were able to connect with all these amazing chefs and, you know, get their their input. And also like they were very, very real and you didn't kind of sugarcoat anything that any of them said. And I thought that was really great. I don't think that people and the general public get to hear kind of the real take on what it's like to be a chef, what it's like to be in restaurants, the arduous, you know, kind of day-to-day activity that can be, you know, so demanding and everything like that. And I thought that you did a really, really great job of not sugarcoating it, but, but also not making it sound, you know, miserable. I think that it was a really, really beautiful balance. So thank you. Yeah, I try to, you know, to celebrate and, and give like a, the real picture. And uh, so w- the first chapter is about, it's like the making of a chef. And I use a title that was already, you know, used for, for a book. But it was for me interesting to see if there was any common thread, you know, like how the passion, you know, get ignited in those people. And a, a lot of them is connected to the family, it's connected to how they've been exposed to food when they were, they were younger. In fact, you know, Matt, a lot of them had their mother or grandmother that was, you know, really cooking, you know, well at home. I think I had canned asparagus until I was 14. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I hope your mom is not listening to that. No, no, I, I went to a cookout to one of my friends that, and they just threw it on the grill, fresh asparagus. And that was when I was like, hey, guess what? I like asparagus. But until, until I was 14, that was the only vegetable wow. I didn't like. Wow. Okay. So I have the question for you guys is when did you had this spark, you know, and says, okay, this is the moment where I decide that I'm, I'm going to be a chef. If you remember. So for me, I started working in restaurants when I was 14. My neighbor worked at a diner. He needed help on the weekends, just like kind of scrambling eggs, cutting potatoes, whatever it was. I did that on the weekends. They'd pay me cash, which was great when you're in high school. It was 200, 200 bucks a weekend. It's good money. And then over the summer, I worked there like three or four days a week. And little by little, I just like, I'd learn how to make the omelets. I'd learn how to make pancakes. They would do lunch. It was just short order cooking, but I really started to fall in love with it and started to watch. At that time, I thought Food Network at that time was very good. Not as much so anymore. <laughs> That was a time of what? Do you have Emerald? On, on em- em- Emerald was like a really yeah. big... I think at that point, when I was growing up, Food Network was still... There were still a lot of chefs on it. They were cooking in their whites, in their... And it was... and like Still cooked in their restaurants. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was a very different time. And that was... I mean, that was my big thing. I, I was constantly watching that. And just... I started cooking for my, my parents, honestly. That's what it was. Um, I think they appreciated that. They didn't have to. They didn't have to come home from work and cook. I was getting home from no school at thirty or four, and uh, I I was cooking. So, and then from there, I just I didn't go to culinary school. I worked through the diner all through high school. Picked up some other jobs to learn in like a French restaurant in my my neighborhood, and then I just I stuck with it. So for me, it was you know similar story. You know, I started working a part time job in high school. I was fifteen. I was washing dishes at an Italian restaurant close to where my parents lived, and. I love the energy. I love the team atmosphere. I played 
baseball in high school as well. And I loved kind of the the hustle and bustle and the energy and, you know, working with a team. And I thought that was really great. And my parents really, really wanted me to go to college and I didn't want to go to college. And so I went to the quickest culinary school that was available. That was the Cordon Bleu Atlanta. And so I went there and got a job working for Roy's in Atlanta with Roy and, you know, just worked my way up and, you know, from line cook to chef. So never, never look back. It's funny that you mentioned Royce because that was my first exposure coming to coming from France, you know, in 2002. I had the chance to go to a lot of like shows and food shows in, it was in Las Vegas and that, you know, and he had at that time still Royce Vegas. And that was my first exposure to, I would say probably a style of fusion cuisine. We can still call that, you know, fusion cuisine. And I fell in love with it. And, and you know, that combination of, of taste that coming from France and having this long heritage, you know, of French cooking, it was like, wow, you know, there's something different. So I had the chance to interview him at the, you know, on the podcast, very, very nice person, very accessible. I, I traveled to Hawaii. I went to his first restaurant just outside of Honolulu and he was not there, but I left a message thinking that he will never, you know, come back to me. And then two days after he reached out on the email and said, Hey, I, I listened to some of your episodes. I love the podcast and I'm going to do it. And, and, you know, that was, that was very, very kind of it. And I'm still in contact, you know, with him trying to get into like the, the Hawaiian food festival. <laughs> a bit yeah, later this year. I'm still trying to get him to invite me to. So <laughs> Maybe we can do a package. <laughs> if, he's, if he's listening. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll send a message to his wife <laughs> because she's the yeah. one like in charge of the, of the festival. He's the one that taught me to never say no to anything. Mm -hmm. He was like, if Here somebody asks you to do, to do something apply. in the computer, <laughs> in the community, like you, you should always say yes. Like just get out there, do it. You never know what's going to come of it. So. Yeah. Very cool. So there's a part of the book, going back to the book, that really resonates with you the most. There, there, there was a part for me that this was interesting too, being pretty new to DC, about Chef Paladin. Butter? <laughs> no, the, the vegetables. Ah, okay. So when he, like Chef Farmer Lee, what is it, Farmer Lee Jones, <laughs> who I just know is a farmer that wears a bow tie. I didn't really know the whole story. Yeah, the red bow tie. The red yeah. bow tie and, mm -hmm. and overalls. So just ta he, so he was a chef from France. I believe he had two Michelin stars in France. Came to DC, was the chef of Watergate Hotel. I think it was Jean-Louis Paladin. Jean Paladin. Yeah. Jean-Louis Paladin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And moved to DC. Um, two star he had two stars in France. Came here, opened like an iconic restaurant in DC. But his big thing was when he moved here, he basically said the vegetables in the United States are horrible. Probably got the asparagus from your mom. Pro probably, <laughs> probably. He uh, also used to smoke in the kitchen. Yeah, well, that was different times, yeah. yeah. It's French, you know, um, probably, yeah. yes. But I, I just thought it was very interesting. So he came in and basically was like, the, the vegetables are horrible. We need better vegetables. So worked with this farm to basically like, hey, I'm not going to tell you how to grow them, but we need vegetables that have flavor. And I think that you take it a little bit for granted now because most major cities, you have a farmer's market where you can go and get organic vegetables, but... 25, 30 years ago, that was not the case. Everything was, how can we make it as cheap and as accessible to everybody? So he worked with other chefs like Danielle and Eric Repair and there's a couple other ones I'm forgetting, but like- Thomas Keller. Thomas Keller. Actually, a bunch of those chefs actually worked for him too, I believe. And just really changed the projection of like what most vegetables that, you know, at least that I'm working with, I know that Opie's working with, of like what we want as chefs. And he really was a big part of that. And it was something I didn't really know. I started, I read that chapter and then I started Googling more about him. I knew he was a chef in DC, obviously, 
but it was pretty interesting to see that through the book. Uh-oh. Wow. You're going to read? Sure. Can I? Is oh, that okay? sure. Of course. You're, I thought yeah. we were going to sell some books. <laughs> <laughs> you could be my publicist if you want. <laughs> yeah. I really like, you know, I, I went through and highlighted a bunch of stuff, but, you know, something that, you know, really kind of stuck with me was this thing that Gabriel Kruther? Kruther, yes. Two Michelin star in uh, yeah. New York. Yeah. You know, says also proves that there is still space for consistency and precision in fine dining. He has the desire to teach people to value older cooking techniques that might be out of vogue. His emphasis on tradi tradition seems to have come from his experience and learning from his family or from a region of the world that values culinary traditions. It translated into his desire to bring old knowledge and techniques into modern cooking to ensure these traditions are valued and remember. The techniques we're using are not crazy techniques, he says. It's cooking techniques. We really cook at Gabriel Kruther. We don't just drop bags in the water and 20 minutes later open it. It's not happening. Everything is still done the way we would say the old-fashioned way. What's important to me is to teach people how to tame the fire, basically how to use the fire, the heat, every source, every single cooking style. I always used techniques that were either very old techniques or techniques that were forgotten and that bring you back and then people laugh at you. <laughs> I just really like that. I thought that, you know, it resonated with like the way that I came up cooking was, you know, sous vide was something that was, you know, almost unattainable. You know, when I started cooking, like there were a few chefs doing it and like it was hard to get the immersion circulators and a vacuum seal machine. And like, you know, there weren't a lot of people doing it. And now, you know, that's the standard. When you walk into a restaurant kitchen, it's most things are sous vide. Most things are pre-done. Most things are not cooked from scratch. But, you know, there's so many cooks and chefs in the world that, you know, know how to replicate and like cook dishes that they know how to cook and not actually use kind of the landscape of, you know, whether we're talking about the Mid-Atlantic or, you know, Alsace, you know, for Gabriel Kuther, like, you know, cooking with the landscape of a region and knowing how to use an ingredient like the spinach or, you know, using the vegetables from Farmer Lee Jones or, you know, around here, like my favorite farmer is John Shaw, like, you know, using his produce and getting the most out of that, I think is a skill that a lot of people don't have and don't have a desire to have anymore. So... So I thought that was really interesting. Thank you. I mean, you're, yeah, there's, there's, you know, t I talk a lot about techniques, not because I know anything about it. I love food. I know how to handle food at home, but, you know, not all the techniques that you guys have been trained or exposed to. I think that, you know, it was interesting for me to, to look at techniques versus creativity. You know, what is, because from, you know, I'm a marketing person. So when I look at something and look at it from a creative standpoint, so uh, it, I, I, I'm always inspired with, okay, you know, what was the source of inspiration? What did, you know, the chef wanted to do or the mixologist wanted to do? But the idea is that what is the most important? Is it, you know, techniques or is it, you know, creativity? So can we pause a little bit on this and have your thoughts, you know, on it? I recently reconnected with Andrew McLeod from Avenue M. Oh. And I thought what he was saying about creativity, I have it earmarked in here somewhere, but I'll kind of <laughs> yeah, go, for know, it. go off the cuff. <laughs> but, you know, he was kind of saying like just being inspired by the ingredient in the place. And like, you know, I always kind of use this mantra that like the food should kind of tell you what time of year it is and like where you are, you know, like you're not going to, you know, serve a big pot of chili in the middle of the summer and you're not going to, you know, try to serve tomatoes in the middle of winter so i thought that that was you know using creativity rather to create something that's esoteric or like pick up a cookbook 
and flip open to a page and be like, I want to cook this, but using, you know, knowledge and technique to take an ingredient that is delicious and figure out how to do the be exact best thing to it. Does it need salt? Does it need acid? Mm -hmm. Does it need to be cooked? Can it just be what it is? You know, those sorts of things. So, so something comes to mind when, you know, you say that because I'm talking to a lot of those chefs, it was interesting to compare their creative process depending of their, let's say, life stage. I don't want to say age, but their life stage, you know, and experiences. And it was interesting to see that when they are, let's say, younger and they are starting, they obviously want to put the fingerprint, they want to establish themselves. So creativity is important, playing with a lot of techniques and I want to say showing off, you know, in some ways is important. And then as they get more experience, it, it is what you are saying. This is the idea of let the produce or the product speaks, you know, for itself or themselves. And then and and try to be as simple as possible. And I thought that that was, you know, an, an interesting, interesting learning. So less, let's say less techniques or maybe a lot of techniques, but it looks very simple on in the plate and so there's the wow effect for the consumers or you know the people dining but they don't know sometimes that it was a lot of techniques behind it it looks very simple and it celebrates the product yeah i i agree with a lot of what was just said i, I think there's like when you're a young chef you're like okay i want to do this and i'm gonna put this on top and i'm gonna do this and this garnish and this twill and then herbs and all this stuff and it's like cool i did 30 techniques on the dish and one of them tastes good. And I think like, as you, and that's the classic, like, you know, I'm, a, I'm the chef. So like I've asked, you know, US cooks or sous chefs to like, hey, I don't know, we got tomatoes in, let's work on a new tomato salad. And it, it is fun. It's part of the creative process to like, hey, you make a tomato salad and put it up. And it's usually got way too many things. I'm like, and you can just go like, why is this on here? Well, I don't know. Okay, remove it. And why is this on here? Okay, let's remove it. And then all of a sudden you taste it again. You're like, hey, now it tastes really good. You got really good tomatoes and you have, I don't know, really good cheese. And it's like, hey, everything on here is great. The seasoning is good. Cool. It's delicious. And then like, is there ways to make layers of flavor? Yes, that's important. And that's how you get depth in your dishes. But you don't need to, you know, as a young chef, I think that's that's a common trap people fall into is I want to show, like you said, show off. Mm -hmm. But showing off doesn't mean you're making a delicious dish by any means. I've been to many restaurants where there's a lot of things and a lot of chefs went into the, the plate. But that's the experience talking. You know now because oh no no for sure young, I did the, I did the same thing when I was when so I was many, 21 and had to put up a dish the there's same, a lot of competition thing. and, and you want to make sure that you know someone is really you know picking you out of like the crowd and I think it's important to find your voice I mean I, I did like this presentation at the Johnson and Wells like two days ago to the you know the culinary students and you know I said you are going to see in the book that there is a lot of chefs that comes from different background they are all different and you know what is important for you is to find you know find your voice and you know and be authentic and uh, i think that this is something that you acquire you know with experience it, it definitely takes time and and i think the simpler your food is you have less to hide behind mm -hmm. so if it's if you're putting a piece of fish with some vegetables and whatever in a sauce all of that needs to be like 100% dialed in, the fish is perfect, the sauce is perfect, you have nothing you're hiding behind. There's no crazy technique, there's no whatever, it's just, you know, you source really good ingredients and you cook it correctly and treat it with care and, and you know, hopefully the guests appreciate that. <laughs>
So I have a question for you, Matt, because the, you know, you have the experience. I would work in a lot of French restaurants and then you work at Oxomoco in, in Brooklyn and, you know, some Mexican. So a lot of the chef have been trained, classically trained, you know, with French techniques. And I have, again, a chapter in the book that says beyond French techniques, because I can talk about it. I'm French, so it's easy for me to point, pinpoint and say, hey, you know, there's more than that in, you know, in the world. And I, I'm curious about, like, if there is specific techniques or a specific way of treating, let's say, food and produce that you have seen, you know, doing Mexican cuisine that bring something new and different than, you know, like open the horizon, I would say, to something new than, you know, French techniques. I guess, I mean, to kind of answer that question, like I, yes, like Emmanuel said, I grew up cooking traditional French food. And then I decided I knew nothing about Mexican food. I moved to New York City. There was a chef, Alex Dupac, who was an amazing pastry chef and decided to open a Mexican restaurant. So I wanted to learn from him. I thought it was pretty cool. His food is, if you've ever Googled it, it's some of the craziest, beautiful food you'll ever see. So I went to work for him and like something I got out of Mexican food right away was the acid acid and chilies. And that's something that I've even carried over to French food. I just think, you know, I've eaten at some, what consider like some of the best restaurants in the world that cook traditionally, like not traditional French, but like very French technique driven. And I feel like sometimes you get into these 12 course tasting menus and you get into the last couple of savory courses and you get like palate fatigue. You're just like, okay, here's another meat jus that's got, you know, a great roasted piece of meat next to it. But it's just like, could I have some chili or could I have some acid and could I have some, you know, fresh herbs or not that they don't use fresh herbs, but I think you guys know what I mean. Like it just, you just, I just get sick of it. Whereas like, if you just squeeze some like lemon or some pickled chilies or something, Mm -hmm. I think it just like, you're like, all right, cool. I'm ready for the next dish. I want to eat again. Like uh, let me have a a sip of wine. Like it's good to go. Whereas, so that's something that I definitely like took from doing Mexican food. And it's really transitioned into like what you're seeing, I think, with a lot of French food now, whereas like the heavy redu- over-reduced meat sauces, that's kind of moved away and you're seeing a lot of chefs use salsa verdes and, you know, little quick sauces and, and it's more bright, it's fresh, it's, yeah. it's seasonal. I have a question for you, Opi, which is a little bit different. is because you have an experience of both, you know, working in a restaurant and as well in the restaurant in a hotel. So how, how is it different? I wouldn't say that the restaurants that I worked in in, in, in hotels were normal hotel restaurants like we didn't have a caesar salad on the menu we didn't have you know the the normal things that hotels have on the menu because i just that's not what i wanted to do Mm -hmm. and that's not what was true to me and like i can never you know like call up cisco and be like hey like why don't you guys bring the truck by and you know we'll get stuff stuff off of it and and go that's just not what i want to do so you know i think that you know, for me, it was about trying to make people think that they were getting this experience that, you know, had so much more meaning to it. Like, and if people wanted to, to dive into that experience and, and find out the meaning of where their food came from on their plate, then they could. But if they just wanted to come in and get something delicious delivered to their hotel room, they could also do that. But, you know, maybe they didn't know that their burger came with, came the beef from their burger came from you know, Baltimore County and the lettuce came from Baltimore County as well, which was super close. And that we made the pickles from, you know, a farmer from Pennsylvania and that, you know, all of the things that went into it were from around here. But then when you eat it, it's super simple and delicious, but you may not understand what all went into it. it. So 
Very good. I have like Caroline looking at me and says, five minutes. And then, you know, so I'm going to ask you the last question before people can, you know, to ask their questions. The last question is like, in your opinion, what makes this book like unique and stand out among some, you know, other books around food? I think it's unique kind of going back to where we started is that it rides the line between it being romantic and it being, you know, realistic. And it, you know, for me, it was, you know, at first, when I first started reading, I was like, some of this stuff is like a little challenging because I'm like, I feel like I'm working. You know what I mean? I feel like I haven't like, you know, usually like when I'm off of work, I'm trying to do something to like, sure, get my mind off of it. You know, even if it's just for a few minutes and then I end up, you know, looking at a cookbook or whatever it is. But, you know, I felt like when I started reading, I was like, wow, this is, this feels like I, this experience could have happened to me or, you know, that, you know, it's a real life thing that happened or didn't happen or that I could relate to. And, you know, I thought all the stories that you told about, you know, like Chef Johnny Sparrow's story and of how he traveled. And then, you know, now he has a Basque restaurant in Washington, D.C. Sure. And he, yeah. So all this traveling and like it was putting very, together Japanese and Spanish, you right. know, influence. Yeah. And I thought that and Denmark, too. you know, that really kind of showed like that it doesn't you don't just wake up one day and you're a chef and you're like, oh, I can cook this food. You know, it comes from a lot of painstaking experience and life experience. So I, you know, one of the, la the recent episodes that I posted, it was uh, we just talked about it before with the chef Brad Kilgore from uh, Miami. And he said like a sentence that for me was like, it's a great sentence, a great quote, which is being a chef is like a blue collar job, but that gives white collar opportunities. So you need to be able to uh, cook and know how to cook, you know, but if you really want to succeed, you have to put yourself out there in order for the people to discover you. And you need to be able as well to, you know, to challenge you know, opportunities and, and embrace them. So, because it can lead to a lot of other things beyond cooking, beyond, you know, the stove in the kitchen. I, I think for me, it, I mean, it's kind of relates to the first question I think that we, we started with, but it, it, this book, I think, does a very good job of, if you're in the industry, you can relate to everything that's being talked about. It's all stuff that we've dealt with or know people that dealt with or whatever. I think it's very good, but it also... I grew up and most of my friends and family were not in restaurants in any way. And I think it also gives them very good insight of stuff that restaurant people deal with, chefs deal with, servers, bartenders, whatever. And I think it does a very good job of, of showing that from both sides. So I think that's why I, there's a lot of books you read and it, it like kind of sugarcoat stuff and makes it sound like a dream job and the best case scenario all the time. And that's not necessarily what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So if you want to listen to more of those conversations, please follow the podcast flavors unknown you can follow as well on you know the i post everything on instagram so at flavors unknown so that's that's easy so i guess we want to open the floor for for questions i mean i have a, a million questions but i'm just going to start with one you asked about the origination of both chefs here career and sort of passion where they had that light bulb moment of knowing that they were going to be a chef and I'd be curious to hear of your origination as somebody who is writing about food and whether you started writing recreationally and personally before it became professional or if you just went out with a piece that you had and knew that it was something that would become a career. That's a very good question. So 
Caroline mentioned in the introduction that I am, you know, in charge of marketing for a company that, you know, manufacture flavors. So in my job, I've been, I, I wrote a lot of articles for customers, for, our, you know, company blogs and so on. But that was the limitation of my writing. And what happened is maybe it was, so one person from the company, when I started the podcast, maybe, you know, after six or seven episodes said, she said to me, you should write a book. And I'm like, ha ha, yes, <laughs> yeah, you know, I wish. So, and, but it put something in my, you know, in my brain. And then maybe six months before the pandemic, I have a lot of chefs and foodies that listen to the podcast that connects with me through, through you know, direct messages. And they said, you know, the content is really good. You should write a book. And the pandemic hit. And usually I travel a lot for my job. And of course I was home and I'm like, okay, let's give a little bit of thoughts. So I was able to join like a, a writer's club and with different, I would say, coach, writing, writer, coach, writing coach. And I just pitched my idea of the book and, you know, talking about the fact that I have a lot of episodes and uh, I have a lot of rich content about, you know, chefs and I really want to share, you know, what is like the reality of being a chef and and how they were successful and what was the path that they, they took be, to, become, to become successful. So to make the story short, I didn't know if I had it in me. And one of the coach called me back and said, it's it's really good story. You should write. And I said, I'm not sure I can. So he said, write me 10 pages. That's what I did. I wrote 10 pages. And she said, you know how to tell a story, so you should pursue it. So, and I decided to do it the traditional way. So not to self-publish, but to try to get an agent and then a, a book deal. And I, yeah, I pitched, I think, 14 different agents and two were interested. One wanted to publish the book, the manuscript, how it was. The other one was more in the food space. And she challenged me. She said, Great stories, but there's not enough of you in the book, and we need to hear more from your voice. So I rewrote one chapter completely, and she liked it, and she said, now, if you still want me to represent you, I will. And that's how it started, and she got me a, a public, uh, you know, publication deal, I would say, yeah, December of uh, 21. So it took me like 22 months to write the manuscript and, uh, and so on. So it was quite fast compared to other people, and yes, I think I was, I was lucky. Compared to other people that, you know, sometimes write one manuscript, two manuscripts, three, and so on. And so, so that's, that's the story. So it was really long, but that's. This is a short and sweet question, but I think very appropriate for our setting. What are some of your favorite cookbooks or cookbooks that you think are underrated? That was, that was mentioned by Carolyn. It's almost like you work here. Or <laughs> so I'm going to start because I love this book and I think it's underrated. It's on the shelf because we make sure that it was there. It's called Chasing Flavor and it's from Chef Don Kluger. It has a restaurant called Loring Place in, in New York City. I think it's for someone who is not a chef. I think that book is fantastic. It talks about achieving balance of flavors, things that Matt was talking about, bring the acidity, bring, you know, the umami character, bringing sweetness, whatever it is, but done in a very practical way. So, and, and showing how at home you can as well do the prepping and the mise en place, you know, and, and using, in fact, that's the reason why I put it on the cover of my book. 
those daily container where you can prep a lot of things and you know save it for for later so that's my book <laughs> so this is a tough question because i unfortunately well not unfortunately but i like to collect cookbooks so there's i could go on and on there's one that i'm staring at right now a lot technique from jacques pepin that's it's old school but it's if you're looking up techniques of anything it's in there i think it's a great reference book i'd say it's a little more geared towards professional chefs but great and then two books that kind of really inspired Lutes is one's called Bistronomy, real big movement of chefs in Paris that had worked at, you know, two and three Michelin stars, not really wanting to work in white tablecloth restaurants anymore, all opened in, you know, low rent areas of the city. And I'd really say it's the big movement in Paris right now. And then one of the restaurants that was inspired from that whole movement is Septime. It's in the 50 best. It's it's a bistro though. They do a five course prefix menu, which is very common in Paris. It's not a stuffy restaurant in any way. They just did a book this year, last year maybe, but it's phenomenal. And just, it's very, a lot of the food you cook, cook at home. It's not, you don't need sous vide and, you know, a rational combi oven and all this stuff to do it. You, you know, you're going to have to source some ingredients, but I think the food is very approachable and the flavors are just phenomenal. When I answered this question, I, I had to go back and look at like see what cookbooks that I bought. And I realized that I've bought Cooking by Hand by Paul Bertoli like seven or eight times because I like to hand it out to young cooks. And, you know, I think it's a really, really like good book, not only like to to just cook from, but also to like learn about flavor and building flavors and, you know, the way that he cooks and sources his food is also very good. And I just, I think it's a really beautiful book. And it was one of the first books that got me inspired to cook in a certain style and in a certain way. So I would say that one. So thinking about the title of your book, as well as the timing of its publication, I think right now there is a really big industry pushback against this machismo kind of behind the kitchen door. What happens is all self-martyrdom and a lot of masculinity and a lot of toxic workspaces. And obviously chefs like Rene Rezepi or David Chang are having to apologize for things that were Part of the culture and just an assumed part of the job. So I was wondering if in your conversations more recently, you felt like there's an internal feeling of change and not just the external pressure from the public. Excellent questions here that you have. Yeah, it, it, it is a topic that was, um, I mean, very important for me um, when I was writing the book because in fact, I even during I did the podcasts, I had once someone, a woman that DM me and said, I love your podcasts, but I'm going to stop listening to it because there's not enough women. And the thing is that it, it was not by choice is the fact that, you know, having a podcast with chefs and chefs in general, not, you know, male or female is very difficult to have to pinpoint them because they are very, very busy people and to have them, you know, to make sure that you schedule like an appointment for the recording and so on. It's always a challenge. You have to chase them. And it happened that I had a lot of women that were interested in doing it, but that didn't, you know, go through like the whole thing. So that's, that was the explanation, but I wanted to make sure that I had at least something connected to the statistics in the, the country, which is 20, only 25% of restaurants are owned by, you know, women 
chefs in in the country, which is very small. But I, you know, that's why I wanted to make sure that I had this. And then as well, I wanted to have a woman that chef that was exposed. And so I asked Elizabeth Faulkner, who is a friend, to write the foreword because it was for me important to have the voice of a woman, you know, in in the book and you know uh, up front. So that's the context. Now to answer your question is yes, I see a lot of changes and actual changes, especially with the newer generation, you know, of chefs like you know Matt and, and OP that we have here that are very conscious, you know, about the you know that that situation and the sexism that and you know abuse and whatever that that happened in uh, you know in the industry. I think it was very good to have, you know, to bring the light, you know, on on the on the situation. So I I do feel that the tone in the conversation, at least that I have with the chef, you know, has changed. Like from the beginning of the podcast and as well, depending of like the generation of chefs that I am interviewing. So my family is also from France. I was born there and Nobody's my parents... Nobody's perfect, you know. What was that? <laughs> Nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and I think that my parents, when they moved, told me that like the bread that we would get at Price Chopper was really terrible. And like now it's gotten way better, as you've said, with the vegetables as well. But regardless of all of the changes that the U.S. has had, is there any food that you really miss or any way of preparing things that you wish would come to the States? Hmm. Wow. You put me on the spot here. So that's a good question. I think that's when I arrived. I think I was missing... Not because I, I didn't have ex- I didn't explore at that time too much, and then maybe there's maybe more available now. Talking about the cheese, I think that you know when I arrived in this country a long time ago. I mean, I came a year back in 1988 after my I graduated in France, and I went to Wisconsin, and they they were very excited to show me the cheese that they have, and I remember maybe the first weekend I had like uh, some of the colleagues like brought me to a farm and they said, he's from France, he loves cheese. So she was very excited. She went in the back and she brought me what I would describe, I'm sorry, but like a yellow brick. <laughs> so, and it's, it's a six month cheddar. It's a six month cheddar. So, of course, you know, I was very polite and I thought it was outstanding. But since I discovered, in fact, uh, cheese from, you know, California or Vermont and there's fantastic, you know, cheeses. So I, I missed it at the beginning, but maybe it was because of lack of exploring. And now as well, I think the distribution is maybe wider than 20 years ago. So I do not miss that. The rest I do, I mean, I cook a lot at home. So um, a lot of, you know, French food, obviously. Do I miss anything? I think, you know, another piece as well is some of the the charcuterie that, you know, we have plenty of like charcuterie over there between the pâté and the saucisson and, you know, all of this. So... Yeah, I'm in New Jersey, so there is like some Italian, but it's not exactly the same. So I, yeah, maybe I miss that. So when I go back to France, uh, my sister lives in Burgundy, so and and my brother in you know in Provence. So I usually do a a big let's say tasting of wine and cheese and charcuterie. That's usually what I do. We can stay here the whole night. Look, they are very interesting, and we have great guests. So. And we should even even listen to their wives too, because they are in the industry. The sweet side. Oh yes, yeah. Isabel, you have to come. 
It's not a question. It's more like a, I'm very happy you you took the time to write that book. You know, I think it's it's as we all know, it's a very conflictive time in an in industry, and the more points of view we get, and the more I think it touches the points of like. I love that it started with both of them talking when they were little. So I think that's what brings you this cookbook. You know, everybody can relate how you started cooking and how you actually cook for others. And I think you took the time to put those voices out. And I just wanted to say, I'm, I'm happy you wrote that book. Thank you. I'm glad it, you took the time to do it because uh, it's good. It's important, you know, and, and we got to amplify as much voices as we can with the platforms we have. And that's cool. Thank you. Gracias. So, de nada. So two good reasons to go to Lutece because the desserts are done by, you know, Isabel. So, so the food and the desserts are two main reasons to go to Lutece in Washington, D.C. You want to add anything? You, you want to have your voice heard? No? I know, pastry chef too. That's left Western DC, so one pastry chef left, less here. <laughs> no, nothing to add. Too shy. We're all friends here. That's it. Okay. Thank you very much. And there we have it, a culinary journey into the heart of my book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, or from the comforts of Bold Folk Books in Washington, D.C. This is a great bookstore. If you love cookbooks, you need to go there. You need to talk to Clementine Thomas. She has a lot of recommendations. Our deepest gratitude to chefs Matt Conroy and Opie Crooks for their invaluable insights. And once again, a big thank you to Clementine for hosting this enlightening event at her store. If you found this episode flavorful, be sure to share it with your fellow food enthusiasts. And don't forget to buy the book if you haven't done that yet. I would really appreciate it. You can find it everywhere you buy books online and from my website, flavorsunknown.com. For more behind-the-scenes stories from the world of food and books, stay tuned to Flavors Unknown Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Until next time, keep exploring those uncharted flavors. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.